Well, hey, welcome. Happy Easter. I'm going to throw the, uh, sorry, Aubrey and Nathan, <laughs> the video, <laughs> video team, productions team. Me moving up here really messes them up, actually. Messes up the video, messes up the audio because I'm in front of the, the speakers. But I was sitting back there and I'm like, they're so far away from everybody. And I'm still a solid 15 feet away from you, but uh, even the people in the, in, the, in the front row, but I just can't. I can't be that far away from you. <laughs> so anyways, uh, hey, well, happy Easter. Happy Easter. You guys doing good? Doing all right? Yeah, it's not a bad way to have church uh, outside. We were talking about this on Good Friday, but uh, I really do think that whenever we're able to meet uh, indoors again, we're actually gonna, we're gonna miss being able to have church outside on, on, most, on most Sundays. Sometimes it's really hot or cold or rainy. We talked about this Friday, but I feel like there's like a 10 degree window where Californians... Uh, are happy with the weather <laughs> where it's not too hot or too cold, and we're we're in the pocket right now. So, well, happy Easter! Uh, so I'm just gonna go ahead and dive right in. We have a lot of content to cover uh, for Easter. If you're if you're new to the church, uh, if it's one of your first times here to Voice, maybe you saw it on Facebook or you got dragged here, you lost the bed or something. Uh, really glad that you're here. If uh, the team's gonna hang back after service, we actually asked the the some of the core leadership to stay back and not tear down uh, really fast, but allow space. So if you're new to the church and you have questions or maybe you're, you used to go to the church and, uh, you know, COVID happened and you haven't been around for a while and you have questions or you just want to connect, feel free to hang back. And uh, my wife and I are here, the team's here, answer any questions that you guys uh, may have. We're an open book. Uh, but like Natalie said, man, it's so good to see you guys. Uh, so many faces that we haven't seen uh, in real life. We've seen you on Zoom and on Instagram, but uh, seeing in person is a different thing. It's really, really good. There's something about being in person that's just different. That's just different. Being with people in person actually gives energy. Uh, I feel like being on Zoom drains my energy. And can you guys feel that? Like we're together, but we're not. So many guys, though, that are introverts, um, I think some of you guys have hit your limits, uh, but some of you guys are just living your best life, to be honest. You're like, I hope this never ends. I had, now I have an excuse why I can't go out you know, it's pretty awesome. I'm being a responsible citizen. Well, hey, today, what we're going to talk about today uh, is why I believe you should, you should really strongly consider putting your faith in Jesus as Savior. Obviously, that's our whole point today, but it may not be for the reason that you, that you may think. And you may ha already have put your faith in Jesus. And for those of you guys that are Christians, then hopefully today will give you a resurgence of faith that you can stand strong in what you believe and that it's not a fairy tale. And for some of you that have kind of danced around the idea of faith, man, today is a perfect day to make that official. We're going to give you an opportunity at the end. Again, if you're new to the church, you may have realized that I don't talk slowly. Uh, in my head right now, I am talking slowly. Uh, but I realize for a lot of people, that's just not the case. So, <laughs> uh, but I do believe that you can handle or you can consume information twice as fast as you think. So we're going to test that today. All right. So here's my challenge to you. I, th I really want to challenge you to consider putting your faith in Jesus despite your doubts. I want to challenge you to put your faith in Jesus despite any questions that you may have, questions that I can answer. And even the questions that I, I'm right there with you with the same questions. I believe you should consider this in spite of some of the Christians you've met. I think that you should consider putting your faith in Jesus despite some of the Christians that you've done business with, despite some, uh, the, some of the scandals around church or Christian leaders, even in spite of how you view the Bible. 
and what all the, the nuance of scripture, what you believe the Bible says about this or that. I even, I even think that you should consider putting your faith in Christ despite your church experience, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because, because the foundation of our faith is not Christians. The foundation of our faith is not the behavior of Christians. The foundation of our faith is not even answered prayer. The foundation of our faith is not even the Bible. And the crowd that says, well, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. The, for the first 300 years of the church, they didn't have what we know now as the New Testament. So the foundation of our faith is not even the Bible. I know some of you guys are like, that's heresy. We'll dig into it a little bit. But the foundation of our faith is Easter. What we're celebrating today, Resurrection Sunday, is the foundation of our faith. This is why our faith has nothing to do with even your personal experience. The reason why I want you to trust Jesus with your heart has nothing to do with even your personal experience. The reason is bigger than that, and the reason is simpler than that. So why is it? Why is it that Nero, how many of you guys ever heard of Nero, right? Why is it that Nero, emperor of Rome, is known primarily for killing Christians and not for being emperor? Why is it that Caesar Augustus, Rome's first emperor, the guy that made it an empire from a republic, the guy who reigned for 40 years in Rome, why is it that outside of a few history buffs, he's only mentioned every Christmas in languages all over the world as a footnote in the story of this Jewish son of a carpenter from Galilee who ruled nothing, went nowhere, went public for three years, was crucified by Caesar, Caesar's adopted son, Tiberius. Why is it that for 300 plus years before there was a New Testament, people continue to put their faith in Jesus? And how is it that the church not only survived, but thrived Roman oppression in the first century? How is it that the early church survived even Jewish pressure on them? to squash their movement? I think the answers to those questions are why you should consider putting your faith in Jesus, or at least reconsider putting your faith in Jesus. Some of us, if we're honest, have used to go to church because we were voluntold to go to church as children. And at some point you learn things or experience things and kind of decided to walk away from the faith. And for whatever reason, you find yourself here in person or watching online. And I want to challenge you to reconsider your faith, to reboot your viewpoint on faith. I prayed a lot for you this morning, for those that are Christians and a lot for those that are not Christians yet. See, there are people that study movements and how movements are created. And these movements all have a few things in common. Usually there's like this unrest or inequality. There's oppression or pain or discrimination. And then someone comes on the scene with a new voice, with new values. And they say things that make people go, I've never heard that before. Right? So you have a charismatic leader with something new to say or something that appeals to what's going on in culture. A couple examples here. You got the prophet Muhammad who was 570 to 632 is when he lived in the late 6th and 7th centuries. He came out of a cave one day and he said that God had spoken to him, right? He unified the Arab tribes and he moved them from polytheism, worshiping multiple gods, to worshiping one God and then to form an army around their faith. Or take MLK. Incredible discrimination, inequity, inequality, violence, desperation. And then here comes this extremely intelligent, extremely charismatic, motivational voice. 
with a message that inspired and unified not only the African-American community, but millions of non-African-Americans who had that same dream of equality for all. He left his job as a rising star, as a, a, a educator, as a pastor, and then he went on to Montgomery, Alabama, and he had this idea, his central idea of not only equality, but of nonviolence. His movements were nonviolent, which was radical at the time. And he gave people the opportunity to say, I'm with you. It wasn't us versus them. It's us. It was a totally different message. You know when, when MLK gave the I Have a Dream speech? There were 250,000 people there. Did you know that 60,000 of them were white? 60,000, almost a fourth because of this radical idea that MLK had. So typically movements have this charismatic leader that comes out of this desperate time. Secondly, movements start when the leader that dies, their followers pick up the burden of leadership. Their followers pick up their values and their teachings and they continue them forward. Take example again, Muhammad, he died in 632. But his followers said, this is not the end. The values have to keep getting taught. So they wanted someone to take over leadership. Some wanted one of his sons. Some wanted more of a political leader. And that began all sorts of strife. If you read history, Muslims went on to conquer Arabian Peninsula, the Holy Land, North Africa, and Spain. And Muhammad today is undeniably more influential a thousand years later than he was a thousand years ago. Why? Because leaders took up his values and reminded people, remember what he taught, remember what he taught. Take MLK, executed, assassinated in 1968. But then the civil rights movement continued, it actually gained momentum. That was like a catalyst. Other leaders picked up the mantle and spread his teachings. To this day, we quote things MLK says. The movement gained momentum. Why? Because they led his values. And one would assume if this is the way movements are created, that it'd be the same way with Jesus. But it was not. People would assume that after Jesus died, after he lived, taught, and was executed, that his followers felt the need to, to keep the dream alive. So they went on teaching and what they saw Jesus teach them, but that's not what happened. Any close investigation would tell you that's not what actually happened. And any, any serious historian doesn't embrace that theory. That's what makes Jesus and Christianity really strange. See, we can't view the rise of Christianity like the rise of other world movements. Why? One main reason is Jesus's message. Jesus's message. There's a couple problems with Jesus's message. The first one was the message itself. It wasn't unique, like at all. It wasn't unique. His teaching was based on love, which was based out of the Old Testament. The newer aspects of his teaching, you're like, well, no, no, but Jesus said, you have heard it taught, but I tell you. Yeah, but you know what he said? He, he took the Jewish law and he elevated it. He would say things like, you've heard it taught not to commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even look lustfully at someone, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. He, he elevated it. So his teaching was based on the Old Testament. The newer aspects of his teaching were impractical. Pray for your enemies. Okay, who wants to do that? Pay your taxes to Caesar. Oh, the one we want to leave and stop oppressing? Yeah, pay your taxes to them. Hey, here's guidelines for remarriage. Second thing with it wasn't appealing. Sell what you have and give it to the poor. Speak up for the underserved. Get rid of anything that competes with your devotion to Christ. That's not what people want. That's what people say they want. But that's not what people actually want. That's what people sing songs about. But that's not what they actually want. We like to watch movies about other people doing that. But that's not like what we actually want. Do you know what people actually want? Really, at the core, 
apart from, be, from being guided by another North Star. People want to be part of something that allows for elitism. People want to be a part of something that allows for materialism. People want to be a part of something that has rules that favor their gender, their worldview, their ethnicity. That's what people really want. And their problem with Jesus' message is it affirmed Jewish law, like we talked about. You don't hear anything what Jesus talked about overthrowing Jewish law. He affirms it as from God. And he actually raises a standard like we talked about. Another problem with Jesus' message was that he, there was no revolutionary theme. There was no overthrow language. People wanted to get rid of Rome, and so they would pit Jesus against Rome. And then Jesus would just say, yeah, give Caesar what's due to Caesar. He wouldn't go there with them. He wasn't trying to rally a coup. They'd say, well, what about leading this kingdom? And Jesus would say, my kingdom is not of this world. It's like he was seeing with different eyes. This is why when he was brought in front of Pontius Pilate, if you guys know the story, Pilate had nothing to accuse him of. Remember that? He, had to, he actually washed his hands clean of Jesus. He says, because Jesus wasn't a revolutionary. Jesus wasn't a military leader. Jesus wasn't trying to form an insurrection. Jesus wasn't trying to overthrow the government. So that's the first problem of Jesus' message. The second problem of Jesus' message is it wasn't based on values. The second problem of Jesus' message was that it was based on him. And this is what set him apart from every other false messiah that came along. He never called his followers to trust in his ideas. He never called his followers to trust in his revolutionary notions. He instructed his followers to trust him. Now you got to catch this because this is a huge deal. He doesn't ask people to follow his values. He asks people to follow him, right? If anyone wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. If you abide in me. This was the crux of Jesus's message. It wasn't his ideas that got Jesus in trouble. It was who he claimed to be. That's a huge difference. So we'll read in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. It says this, when Jesus arrived in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what are people saying about who the son of man is? In other words, you got your word on the streets. What is everyone saying about me? Who do they think I am? The disciples replied, some think he's John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, some Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he pressed them and he said, but what about you? Forget everybody else. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus came back and said, God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't get that answer out of books or from teachers. My father in heaven, God himself, let you in on this secret of who I really am. And now I'm going to tell you who you are, who you really are. That's a whole other sermon for another time. But essentially he said, he's the Messiah. He is God incarnate. Another time, John the Baptist is, you know, baptizing people because that's what he does. And in Matthew 1, verse 29, he says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God, all caps, capital L, Lamb, it's a proper noun, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, a man who's coming after me, who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. Now catch this. Here is John, who many are saying is the greatest prophet to ever live, people are walking far outside the city to see this strange guy out in the wilderness talking. And John goes, no, 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 no. He says, a man who's coming after me, Jesus, who is far greater than me. Why? For he existed long before me. 
That doesn't make any sense from a practical point of view because John the Baptist is older than Jesus. But what John is saying is, hey, long before I was born, Jesus already was. That this guy is not in our timeline the way you think of linear time. He is way bigger than this. He doesn't say, here comes Jesus who will explain everything. Here comes Jesus who will answer all your questions. Here comes Jesus who will teach you how to be forgiven and get plugged into a small group. He says, this is Jesus. The one who's going to take away the sins of the world. He's playing a different game. One day, Lazarus, is one of Jesus' friends, uh, was sick. And so friends uh, of, of Lazarus and Jesus come to Jesus and say that Lazarus is sick and is going to die. It's kind of crazy. So Jesus was like, you know, doing ministry. And these people come up and say, hey, Lazarus is really sick. He's going to die. And Jesus, obviously, like a good pastor, goes, I need to drop everything and go help Lazarus. That's not what he does. He continues to, to like do what he's going to do. And eventually, because he delays, Lazarus dies. Okay? And when he gets there, they tell Jesus, if you would have come when we told you to come, he wouldn't have died. So how does Jesus respond? He doesn't answer their prayers. He doesn't explain his actions. He's like, oh, I hit traffic on the five guys. I'm so sorry. He doesn't explain his actions. He doesn't go, well, let me explain to you how heaven works. Here's the afterlife. And at the end of all, you'll see him again. He simply responds in this way, which is so weird unless you know who he is. He's, his, his, his response was, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. Not I can tell you how to get to the resurrection. Not I can tell you how to get life. I literally embody, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, again, in me, not in my values, not my teachings, in me will live. In other words, I'm not here to tell you about it. I am it. The one who attends church or is nice or follows my values? No. The one who believes in me, the one who believes I am who I say I am. One day he's having a conversation with his disciples and he's talking about the father and one of the disciples just says, show us the father then, Jesus. Show us the father. And instead of Jesus breaking out the flow chart and, and explaining, here's the relationship with the Father and I, and here's how the Trinity works, it's kind of confusing, but let me try to explain it to you. He simply answers it this way. They ask, Can I, we want to see the Father. And he just says, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. What? In other words, the deity of the Father is the deity of the Son. That this is not just a person standing in front of you. If you see me, you see God the Father. A little cocky, unless it's true. We couldn't get away with that, right? This is why this is important. Never once did Jesus or any of his followers indicate that he intended to leave us with a book of insights. Never once did Jesus or any of his followers indicate that they intended to leave us with a book of principles to pass on. Jesus didn't talk about his values or teachings as primary. He talked about himself as primary. This is why when Jesus died, his hopes or his followers' hopes died with him. When Jesus died on Good Friday, on Dark Friday, his movement died with him. When Jesus died on the cross, there wasn't one person that said, let's get together and carry on his teaching. Let's get together and pick up the mantle 
and keep moving this movement forward. Why? Because Jesus was so central to Jesus's teachings that there was nothing to pass on. How do you follow someone that's dead? How do you abide in someone that's dead? So when his disciples watched him die, the movement died too. The mission died with him because unlike anybody else, he claimed to be the mission. When Jesus died, no one believed his, his, his message. No one believed his claims. The movement died with him. This isn't theory. This is history. Even before he died, the night that he was betrayed, his closest followers scattered. The OGs, the, the inner circle scattered. Peter even denied knowing him to a middle school girl. That's how scared he was. That's how much their faith had been fractured. The very people that bring us the story of Jesus present themselves as spineless cowards. Kings don't do this, right? Kings, they hire historians, historians to tell his story of how great and majestic the king was. You don't write history that makes you look foolish or dumb. That's not how you write it. You, make his, you write history to make yourself look amazing. Peter goes from you are the Christ to this middle school girl. No, nah, I don't know him. Don't know him. No, seriously, I, I, I think you, you're getting me confused with somebody else. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all bring us the same story. There were no heroes after the execution of Jesus Christ. There were no heroes. No one that stood up and said, I'll carry the man. Nobody. Nobody stood by his or her man. This is why we believe their accounts. Because if they would have made this up, someone would have been the hero. Someone would have been faithful. But Peter, the chief disciple, was the least faithful. There were no Christians at the cross. Right after the crucifixion, there were no Jesus followers. No disciples. Why? Because messiahs don't die. Right? The son of God can't be killed. You can't crucify the resurrection and the life. So how do we go from that desperate, this thing is over situation, to one where 300 years later, you have a Roman emperor named Constantine, who not only becomes a Christian, but declares Christianity legal. Where do, how do we get from that desperate situation 2,000 years ago to where we are today, where one third of the world will gather in services like this and worship him? How does that happen? The answer has nothing to do with what Jesus taught has nothing to do with what Jesus taught. Has everything to do with Easter Sunday. That Sunday morning after Passover, John chapter 20, verse one says this, and this is so interesting. It says, early on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. That's weird. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, who is John, by the way, John, John the, 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 the uh, disciple, and this is from the gospel of John. So when he says the one the disciple loved or the one that Jesus loved, John is talking about himself. It's like your, your kids are like, like our kids, like especially our younger one will write notes to us, uh, Natalie and I. 
and say, from your favorite daughter. You know, it's like, this like one of those moments, right? So John goes, so she came running, Mary Magdalene came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And in brackets, in many of your scriptures, it says, no one assumed a resurrection. This is an important part. The reason why Mary was so confused, the reason why when she saw the, the tomb empty, she was like really concerned. The reason why she ran to Simon Peter and they were really concerned was because they thought someone stole the body. That's it. They didn't think there'd be resurrection. They just thought who would have the audacity to steal this body? In the first century, a woman's testimony had no credibility. Zero. Actually, women were not even able to testify in court legally. And again, this gives more credibility to the accounts because they didn't embellish it to make it more believable. They didn't say, okay, let's move Mary out. Let's have Peter find the body first. If there was a way to write women out of the critical moment, they would have. Why? Because it discredits their story. So do you know why the gospel writers write that women were the first people to discover the empty tomb? Because women were the first people to discover the empty tomb. Why is this important? Because they didn't say he was risen. Peter, John, none of them said he is risen. None of them. They didn't know what was going on. They assumed the body was stolen. So no one camped outside the tomb waiting for the resurrection. When they put Jesus into Joseph's tomb, they weren't sitting outside seeing Kumbaya going, any minute now, this is going to be amazing. They scattered. They were done. They thought this whole thing was over. The ones closest to Jesus thought that when he died, he would stay dead because people tend to do that. Luke 24, verse 11 says this, but they did not believe the women. This is Peter and John. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. I mean, that makes sense, right? It doesn't make any sense. The men didn't go, the tomb is empty. Praise God, there was a resurrection. No, they said, you're crazy. You're crazy. Go check. Did you get lost? Did you take a left at the turn or a right? Did you get the right place? They said, you're crazy. So Peter and John wanted to go check it out themselves. So verse three, it says, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple <laughs> outran Peter. Again, this is John talking about himself saying that now, not only is the most loved, he's also faster than Peter, apparently. So, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. So he peeks through the empty doorway and goes, mm -mm. because you don't walk into tombs. Very superstitious. Simon Peter tends to kind of leap before he thinks kind of thing. So Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John wanted to make sure we understand this. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And then it ends with this line. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. Again, who wrote this? John, he saw and believed. He is telling his own story here. When did John believe? When he heard the teachings? When he saw the miracles? When he saw Jesus love people? When did John believe? When he saw the crucifixion? No. 
when he saw the resurrection. The empty tomb, that changed everything. He said, that's when I believe the resurrection changed everything. Now you see the followers of Jesus re-engaging with the mission. Not because of something Jesus taught, not because of any miracles he did, not because of any answers to prayers, not because Jesus explained away any doubts, not because a local church had an amazing service with a petting zoo and they had Steph Curry come in and speak. Right? They re-engaged because of someone they saw resurrected. Suddenly these cowards spilled into the streets and preached. But what did they preach? This is important. What did they preach? They didn't preach the parables of Jesus. They didn't preach the values of Jesus. They didn't preach the teachings of Jesus. They didn't preach the love of Jesus. Are all, are all those things important? Yes, but they are secondary. It's like trying to get good fruit from a tree without having good roots. The root of this, the heart, the core of this is Jesus. So they didn't preach the, the message of Jesus. They didn't preach the teachings of Jesus, the values of Jesus. They had a four-point sermon and they said it over and over and over again. They said to everyone, Jews, Romans, Gentiles, they would say, you killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. That was it. You killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. Get right with God. Peter, the one who became the biggest coward, we talked about him, couldn't even talk to a middle school girl, remember? He said this in Acts chapter three, the first time he preached in front of a crowd. He said, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And everyone was convicted like, okay, what do we do? What do we do, Peter? And Peter said this, verse 38, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If the worship team wants to come up, the resurrection of Jesus answers not only how we got here. The resurrection of Jesus answers one of life's biggest questions of what do we do with our sin? What do we do with the, the, the cancerous tumors that are all over our soul, the regret, the guilt, the shame that all comes from the sin? The stuff in the closet that you don't want anybody to know about. The stuff in your past, the decisions you made, the things you think about, the things you worry about, that if they were projected on a screen, you'd be so ashamed. Even right now, when you think about it, you get anxiety. Your heart is racing faster because you're like, there's a stuff that you don't know what to do with. What do we do with that? That's something unique about us. My dog, I don't think stresses out about that kind of stuff. Something about us, made in the image of God, separated from God, that wants to be reunited with God. What do we do with sin? The resurrection of Jesus highlights the point of his crucifixion, which is the forgiveness of sin. And if he rose from the dead, we can trust what he said about his death. We can trust why he said he had to die. He's got him, Andy Stanley, he's a pastor out in Georgia, and he says that if someone predicts his own death and resurrection and then pulls it off, you should trust what he says. If someone predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, man, you should trust what he says. And I tend to agree with that. The reason why you can trust that Jesus rose from the dead is there's no, there's no other explanation as to why we even know he lived. Think about it. If Jesus isn't resurrect, none of us would ever know he lived. But don't be simplistic. 
We don't believe the Bible, but we don't believe Jesus rose from the dead simply because the Bible says so. For 300 years, remember, the early church didn't have a Bible to tell them that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe Jesus rose from the dead because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, and Paul, and hundreds of eyewitnesses told us so that when the earliest gospels were being written, they were written in, in, in a way that said, hey, and many of these people are still alive. Go talk to them. Research this for yourselves. We believe that something shifted these self-proclaimed cowards into people willing to die for Christ. They went from, I don't know him, and they transformed into, you can kill me. You can do whatever you want to me. It doesn't change what I saw. I saw him die. I was there. I saw them put him in the tomb. I was there. And I saw the tomb empty, and I saw him raised from the dead and talk to us for weeks. I saw it. You can do whatever you want to me. It doesn't change what I know I saw. So if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you can live with confidence. Your prayers matter. Your faithfulness matters. Your generosity matters because there's a God that has proven himself and there's nothing, nothing worth that deserves your attention and your resources than building his kingdom and telling people about the reality of the gospel. Nothing matters more than that. I have a lot of hobbies. I'm sure you do too. None of them should be in competition with building the kingdom of God. None of them. Nothing's worth more than this. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, man, before I became a Christian, I thought Christians were the biggest morons. Out of touch, head in the sand, denying reality, unkind, unjust, fundamentalist. If you're not a Christian, I get it. You've seen things, you've heard things, you've, you've experienced things that make you not want to be a Christian. We talked about this as, as a church before, but the greatest evangelistic tool the church has is the behavior of Christians. But on the other side, the biggest thing that pushes people away from becoming a, wanting to become a Christian is the behavior of Christians. And so despite your experiences, good, bad, or ugly, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you should. No one else offers you words of eternal life. No one else did this. So if you want to stand, we're going to sing this last song uh, together. But I want to give you an invitation. Yeah, you can stand with me. I want to give you an invitation that um, Peter gave 2,000 years ago. I want to give to you today. If you have not given your life to Jesus, can I challenge you? Can I double dog dare you to do that today? You're not joining this church. You can't join this church right now. You're joining the family of God. There's no like magical prayer. There's no like incantation. It's just in your heart or out loud or whispering or asking someone else to pray with you, just simply saying, God, I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of doubt. I have a lot of hurt, but I trust you. I give my life to you. I surrender everything to you. My time, my talents, my treasure, my finances, my gifts, everything is yours. I, I go all in, I push everything to the middle, and I say, use whatever you can, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the, the stuff of my life, and tell your story through my life. I want to be a part of that adventure. That's what this is. And if you later, if you want to know more about the church, we'll tell you more about the church, but that's so secondary. The primary thing is when Jesus asked his disciples, what do people say about me? They're like, oh, they say you're John the Baptist, they say you're Elijah. 
And then he asked the big question, who do you say I am? Who do you say? That's the big question. Who do you say Jesus is? And then he says, and then I'll tell you who you are, who you really are. God wants to go on that journey with you. No one knows the purpose of a thing more than the designer of a thing. And God made you. He knit you together. He knows you. And he says, I want to be a part of this adventure with you. So let me pray for us. And then we're going to sing this song uh, before we dismiss. All right, God, I just thank you. Thank you for perfect weather. Thank you that we could live anywhere in the world, but we get to live in California. God, thank you for that. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Thank you that what we believe in is not fairy tale. That we don't follow a list of values, a list of do's and don'ts. We don't follow a, a, a document of bylaws, but we follow a living Savior. God, for those of us who have had this resistance to following you, God, would you tear down those walls? Would you help us to trust you fully? Would you help us to realize that you are worthy of our trust, that you can handle our trust, and you can handle our questions and our doubts and our fears? Bring us closer to you, God. I pray that all of us would take one step closer to you. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.